Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by United States Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy, who represents the 8th District of Illinois. That includes Chicago's west and northwest suburbs. The congressman serves on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, the Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Crisis, and the Committee on Oversight and Reform. Congressman, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much, Reed. So, Congressman, today I want to talk about Speaker Pelosi's setting of Thursday as a day to vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill, as well as what you're seeing with the debt ceiling and reconciliation and just what those things mean. But first, I want to talk about your experience on January 6th, which I know that the speaker set up a select committee. It is getting back to work now. It's issued subpoenas. It's hard to believe it's been almost nine months. I think that some of your colleagues on the Republican side of the aisle would like to pretend it never happened, but I don't think that any of us can or should do that. So from your perspective, what was it like to be there on that day? It was a horrifying day, Reed. You know, one of those days you don't want to relive. You know, I was sitting in my office about to go and vote on the floor with regard to the certification of the Arizona votes, which had been objected to. And all of a sudden the police, you know, bang on my door and roused me out of my office. You know, later on, I didn't know at the time, but it turns out that there was a bomb planted 200 feet from my office window. You know, they basically evacuated me to one building and then another. And I was there holed up for about six hours until nightfall. And then, you know, the rest of the story that day. But, you know, that particular day cast a very long shadow on all of us, you know, obviously traumatized the country and, you know, personally uh, affected us in ways we are still dealing with. So let me ask you this, and I know that this is a tough question because you have to govern every day, right? You serve as a member of a legislative body, but how do you personally and professionally go about your business on a daily basis with folks that voted against certifying Joe Biden's electoral victory first, and then second, who either call folks, you know, the insurrectionist political prisoners or somehow continue either overtly or obliquely this idea that somehow Donald Trump won the 2020 election. You compartmentalize as a practical matter. There are a lot of measures that you have to work with people on where, you know, they took certain votes that are highly questionable. I think with regard to this day and the types of behavior that were on display, I think the people that is the toughest to deal with are those who call the insurrectionists peaceful or mere tourists or that say that Donald Trump had nothing to do with it and that it was Antifa. And I think that, you know, with regard to some of those folks, especially when they're in my committee hearings, that is maybe a little more challenging to deal with. And quite frankly, I don't see myself working with them perhaps the way that I would have in the past. Well, and I would venture to say 
as someone who worked in Republican politics, and as I mentioned to you before we started recording, that I grew up on Capitol Hill. My dad worked up there for many years. And I think, unfortunately, one of the things that we've seen, too, is that there don't seem to be a lot of members of the Republican House Conference, anyway, who are particularly interested in governing to begin with, which I can imagine must be frustrating for someone who gets up, goes to work every day trying to do the best they can for their constituents specifically and probably for the country real large. You know, I ran a small business before I came to Congress for about seven years before I got successfully elected in 2016. And as a former small business person, you have to be very practical about things. And so when you come here and you run into people who, for instance, you know, don't want to raise the debt ceiling, not because they don't want the debt ceiling raised, but because they want to pin the blame on someone else for doing it and do it in a very cynically destructive way, it's mystifying and it's deeply distressing. And that's just not how ordinary Americans conduct their lives either. Well, I mean, look, again, as someone who used to have an R behind their name, and I'm going to call it the old GOP, the old grand old party, <laughs> you know, this concept of fiscal responsibility was a core tenet of the deal. You know, a lot of folks today don't want to remember that Ronald Reagan cut taxes by a lot, you know, in 1981, but he raised taxes again when he had to. George H.W. Bush said, read my lips, no new taxes, had to raise taxes because the fiscal responsibility piece was important to him. This wasn't a marketing slogan. This was something that he believed in. But now, I mean, was it at 17, the last time we had a debt ceiling and Republicans were in charge of the House and the Senate, there was never any question that it was going to get raised. But for the listeners, the debt ceiling can be one of those things that it starts abstract and it ends abstract for a lot of folks, yeah. not surprisingly. Yeah. So if you could just take 30 seconds and explain to folks what the debt ceiling is and what the potential consequences are if it doesn't get raised. The way I like to think about it is you go to a restaurant and you order the food, you eat the food, the bill arrives, and at that point, you pay it. And essentially, if you don't pay it, you dine and dash. <laughs> and basically what the debt ceiling is, is, is a fancy way of saying, do we pay the bills for which we already receive goods or services, or do we conduct a national bout of dining and dashing and, oh, by the way, risk the full faith and credit of the United States in the process? This is strictly a question of, do you accommodate the payment of bills for past programs. This isn't about future programs. And in this particular case, it's about a lot of programs that Republicans and Democrats had supported during the Trump years. If you remember the CARES Act program or even the $900 billion stimulus program authorized in December of last year. You know, this is what we're talking about here. And it's not about reconciliation or future spending, and therefore it's even more compelling, we pay for it. And do you think that they know the cynicism and the hypocrisy and they just don't care? Or have they so internalized, like, if they want it, I must be against it. Therefore, it doesn't matter what the issue is, what the policy is. They want it. I don't. I think it's more of the former. I don't know Mitch McConnell, but by all accounts, he's a very intelligent person. And he understands exactly why you need to raise the debt ceiling. And in his heart of hearts, I got to believe that he wants that debt ceiling raised. He does not want 
the economy to collapse. However, he is betting that he can obscure the facts in the situation enough to make it sound as though the debt ceiling is being raised to accommodate future programs that Democrats want through reconciliation and other measures, which he believes would gin up his base. He is making that gamble and we'll see what happens. But I think that that's part of the thinking, if I had to surmise it. And so what happens if the debt ceiling doesn't get raised, practically? As a practical matter, obviously the Treasury Department will do everything it can to do what they call evasive measures and try to put off paying this bill so they can pay the other bill. But at some point in mid-October or so, they will run out of options and then they will have to either miss making a payroll payment or miss paying an interest payment on debt Uncle Sam has taken out. And any of those potential scenarios will cause the markets to just tank. And I think that it's fair to say that, you know, in the past we've seen people upset about various issues. I don't think we've ever seen anything like what we would see if we were to not make payments on time or to go into default. So you have constituents on the west side of Chicago, the northwest suburbs. Take me through the worst case scenario. Republicans decide, okay, you know what, we're going to take this all the way. We're not going to agree to a debt limit. We're going to go into default. At what point where we're not talking about government contractors, we're not talking about buying paper clips for the Commerce Department, how quickly would it affect someone who's expecting a Medicare check, a Social Security check, a Medicaid payment? The Treasury Department intentionally tries to be ambiguous about these things to kind of preserve maximum flexibility. However, it's very conceivable that Social Security checks would be delayed. Military pay would be delayed. Other payments would be delayed for vendors and contractors. The worst case scenario is obviously vital functions might be affected as well. And so you just don't want to go down this road. And if you don't pay the interest on the T-bills, for instance, that come due periodically, that triggers a whole other set of problems in the financial world. So you just don't want to go there. And would that include things like spikes in interest rates and the cost of borrowing going up? Oh, yeah. All that would happen. And it boils down to this, which is, you know, you look at that $1 bill that each of us has in our wallet, and on there it says the United States will pay all debts that this bill basically guarantees. And that is what allows for our stability of our American financial system and makes the dollar the reserve currency of the world. This is why people put their money in the United States and in dollar-denominated securities and investments. The moment that that has been violated, that full faith and credit. Full faith of the and credit. US, I was about to say that right. That's on the other side of the bill. Yeah. The moment that that's violated, then all bets are off. And the only people who are cheering are the Chinese Communist Party. Right. And the Russians who just always like causing trouble. Exactly. Maybe Steve Bannon. I mean, look, you sit on the Intel Committee, and I'm sure that the things that you see are both fascinating and frightening on any given day. I think that you're right, right? Which is anything that further indicates an internal or domestic instability in the country is something that they're cheering for. Correct. You know, in that book that just came out by Woodward and Costa, you know, I think Steve Bannon said something about blow it up, burn it down, you know, cause maximum instability. If I had to paraphrase, 
this is the vision that he would have for an America in which a Donald Trump or a Donald Trump-like character would make their entrance. And we'd go down the road of authoritarianism and all the rest. Well, and we should never forget that Steve Bannon, who was a top advisor to Donald Trump and is still a leader of the far-right movement, is a self-described Leninist, not John Lennon, <laughs> Vladimir Lenin, who said, yeah, his preferred state of being is to burn down the existing order and rebuild it in some other highly dystopian vision. These are not good people, and they do not have good intentions. No. So speaking of good intentions, you know, I think late last week or over the weekend, Speaker Pelosi said that she wants to bring the bipartisan infrastructure bill that's been batted back and forth here now for quite a while to a vote this week. And obviously, without betraying any confidences, one, how do you see that going? And two, Republicans will always say that, you know, everything is communism or socialism and overreach. So for the listeners, give us a little of the dynamics of what's going on there in the House and on Capitol Hill with regards to all of these things, because, you know, as you've seen, probably you've been there long enough. You never have one do or die thing happen in Congress at a time. They always sort of like roll up like four at a time. So what's it looking like <laughs> this week? Honestly, I think that that infrastructure bill is going to pass on Thursday. I think that it's just too important. There's too much support among all of our constituents for that particular piece of legislation, and it's vital to the president's agenda. The rub is in the negotiations over the reconciliation package. So there are probably negotiations happening as we speak right now with folks like Joe Manchin and others as to what does the final outline of that package look like to you? And how do we get to a situation where progressives, the Joe Mansions, and others can roughly get on the same page and be in a position where the progressives will be willing to vote for the bipartisan infrastructure deal on Thursday, knowing that there's a reconciliation package in the offing that they can live with, and then that the moderates and others who may not be satisfied or may not be comfortable with the $3.5 trillion reconciliation package, they may say that, yeah, I can live with this. This seems to be something that works for me and will vote for some version of the reconciliation bill that comes up possibly as early as this week as well. So I think there's some fevered negotiations happening as we speak. Let me ask a direct question. You put that all in a very optimistic perspective, and I think that's important. My question for you is, does a Senator Joe Manchin actually want to get anything done, or does he just value being the indispensable man? I think he does want to get something done. I think that he's a person of good faith. He wants some of these investments that we're talking about, whether it's you know universal pre-K or two years of post-secondary education, and wants to work on some of these other measures to reduce child poverty. I think the challenge is what are the pay-fors or how do you pay for this so that you don't add to the debt and what is he comfortable with? That's my read. Well, and so, again, without making my eyes glaze over, can you give us 30 seconds on what reconciliation means? Because like, <laughs> I hear it used a lot, but I don't know what the heck it means. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so reconciliation is a type of process that does not require more than 51 votes in the Senate. Ordinarily, the legislative process in the Senate requires that any bill have 60 votes to withstand a filibuster and come to the floor for a vote. So that's the first thing that you need to know, that 
reconciliation is a different type of legislative process where you only need 51 votes. However, here's the caveat. The reconciliation process must be related to matters that are primarily budgetary in nature. They cannot be merely having an incidental budgetary effect, but a primarily policy-changing effect, if that makes sense. So last week we saw that I think someone was trying to add an immigration component, and the parliamentarian said, in the context of this budget process, that doesn't fly. It's not budget-related enough. It's too specific a policy. Like, there might be a budgetary cost to it, but it's not directly budget-related. Correct. I disagree with her decision, but you have characterized her decision correctly, that she felt that that is too much of a policymaking maneuver rather than something that has a primarily budgetary effect. And so she said, I cannot allow that to be something that's in reconciliation. Well, and so as a member of Congress and looking at your district, the $3.5 trillion, I mean, again, it's, it's a lot of money. And I hate to say this because I'm not trying to belittle it. But also, I think to a lot of folks now, all of it just looks like monopoly money. You know, $2 trillion, $3.5 trillion, you know, a trillion here, a trillion there. Now you got real money. But look, some of the things, whether or not it was related to 9-11 and wars over the last 20 years, whether or not it was related to the financial collapse, whether or not it was related to COVID, it seems like we have a lot of spending in the trillions. And when Republicans were in charge, they seemed to be totally okay with it because it doesn't appear that they really wanted to be on the hook for cutting anything either. Again, I don't know what the final size of the package would be, but if I could just mention some of the programs and why I think that when you talk about those with constituents, they tend to resonate. So, you know, I'll just take a couple. You know, the universal pre-K piece is incredibly important to so many people because they see that as, you know, when we talk about underserved communities and talk about all of our children, that those two years before kindergarten are so vital for making sure that these people are prepared to learn when they reach primary school and the effects lifetime on their productivity as well as keeping them out of the criminal justice system are immense. When you talk about childcare tax credits, another issue, as well as a child tax credit, we are talking significantly, obviously, about taking care of children again, but we're also talking about enhancing the productivity of our workforce and women. Right now, the labor participation rate for women is 57%. For men, it's 67%. That 57% figure puts us among one of the lowest among industrialized countries and it's much lower even than in places where we generally think of societies being more hostile to women participating in the workforce. Now, the reason why women have dropped out of the workforce is because of children not being able to go to school, because of COVID, elders having to be taken care of, and so forth. But now we have to do what it takes to get them back into the workforce. And as a parent of three, I have three kids. I know how expensive it is to take care of children. And this is something that resonates with middle-class Americans. It's expensive. I'm not going to lie about that. But it's vital if we want our society to be more productive. And another thing I'd like to mention, if I may, I'm pushing in a big way also an increase in spending on workforce development and workforce training. This is a passion of mine. Uh, a Republican, G.T. Thompson, and I actually modernized our nation's skills-based and vocational education system 
which is the non-four-year college system that two-thirds of Americans have actually taken advantage of for their post-secondary education. Only one-third of Americans have a four-year college education. I'm pushing this very hard because we have a skill shortage of nine million jobs because employers can't find the people with the skills to take them. And so, again, this is a productivity-enhancing investment, and that's why you know, I think we have to do it. Well, look, I mean, on that front, let me just say that I'm in 100% agreement. I lived in California for 10 years. The single most underutilized educational option in California is the community college system there. We have thousands of them. They're essentially free for in-state residents. There are so many of them that a lot of them have specific and specialized programs. I was having coffee with a person on Friday who runs a very high-tech business, a lot of data involved, you know, and making sure that not only are they collecting and collating the data, but that the data is correct, and said that he is hiring from overseas because the jobs that he had do not require a college degree, but they do require a fairly specialized data training that you could probably get at a community college or in a vocational place. And some of these are $125,000 a year jobs. I mean, $125,000 is still a lot of money in a lot of places. Yes. And to me, that's the kind of thing that is the stepping stone, I believe, Congressman, to rebuilding the American middle class. 100%, man. That's 100% correct. And I think that right now we're kind of at that inflection point. And it goes maybe to a broader point that I believe, which is one of the reasons why we had a Donald Trump is because of all the changes that are happening on the global landscape. There's deep economic alienation right now. People, they are feeling like they are not plugged into the prosperity that's being created at the same time that all these changes are happening. And my goal, making our post-secondary education system, aside from four-year college, world-class, is to make sure these people can get onto the up escalator of the economy. And I feel, and maybe it's a naive thing, but you put a little more money into their pockets, you make them optimistic about the future and their place in the economy for themselves and their children, then all of a sudden they open their perspectives to a lot of other issues, whether it's how we treat people from other countries or even how we treat the underprivileged here in this country. And they're less likely to roll the dice on extreme political figures such as Donald Trump. Congressman, before we let you go, because I know you're busy, I'm going to ask a big question. You serve on a committee, a select committee related to the pandemic. There was an analysis in the New York Times this morning that showed that counties that had predominantly voted for Joe Biden had significantly higher vaccination rates, lower infection rates, lower death rates. And the opposite was true for those who voted predominantly Trump. From where you sit, is there anything we can do to break the fever of Americans seeing vaccination? masking is something other than viewed through a political prism. Because what I don't understand, Congressman, is that the alternative is I'm going to get two shots in the arm or I could die. It boggles my mind. I think it's a great question. I think what ultimately breaks that fever is results. And there are two things that the Biden administration has to do here. One, they have to execute like crazy the plan to roll out more vaccinations, make sure that the children get vaccinated, make sure those who need to get boosters get their boosters, 
And then secondly, they have to be consistent in their communications on these issues. You know, you can't say one day X and then another day Y and make it feel as though there isn't a consistent message about what needs to be done. I guess the third point, if I could, on this particular issue, breaking the fever, so to speak, and getting results is we've got to help vaccinate the rest of the world, Reed. This is something that I have harped on. I talk to my Republican colleagues all the time about this. A lot of them agree with me that unless we step up and help spearhead a program to help vaccinate people abroad, we're going to keep having to deal with variants that come over here and wreak havoc on us. You know, I lost three in my extended family in India to the Delta variant when it first appeared there. And what I did was I introduced legislation called NOVID. It's a play on words, no more COVID. Similar to PEPFAR, what George W. Bush did with HIV AIDS in Africa, just a terrific bipartisan program, which has saved tens of millions of lives, Reed. And similarly, we have to do the same thing for COVID. My program would help to vaccinate 60% of the population of the world's 92 poorest countries. It's not only the right thing to do morally, but it's the smart thing to do because it, you know, you prevent those variants from coming over. And then it also has another benefit, which is, you know, the Chinese Communist Party is going around the world peddling an ineffective vaccine called Sinovax. Doesn't work. And we can provide something that works helps people materially and helps us geopolitically on the world stage at the same time. And so this is a threefer, and I'm fighting hard for this as well. Congressman, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's only a country like the United States that has the capacity to do this much good this quickly for this many people. Yes, sir. And it's one thing where if someone said, hey, you didn't vaccinate all of us in this country, why are you sending them abroad? That's not the situation here. uh, As you know, the reason why people aren't getting vaccinated is they're choosing not to, not because of a lack of supply, but abroad, they're desperate, man. I mean, in Africa, South Asia, I mean, it's just two to 3% of the population. It's dire. And so let's be our best selves here and let's do the smart thing at the same time. And if we do that and deliver results, it will help to break that fever that you were talking about and some of the misconceptions about what needs to be done to end this pandemic. Amen to that. And I just want to say thank you from us here at the Lincoln Project and from all our listeners. Thank you for all you're doing. Good luck this week on your votes. Before we let you go, where can our listeners find you online or your office online? Oh, thanks. It's very simple. My website is krishnamurthy.house.gov. A lot of people can't spell my last name. I say my last name gets me on a first name basis with everyone. So (laughs) just Google Raja, R-A-J-A, and Congress, and you will come across my website. And my Twitter handle is at Congressman Raja. As always, folks, you can find me on Twitter, at Reed Galen. Congressman, I want to thank you for joining me today. I hope you'll come back soon. And until then, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, 
which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.